Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire at occultofpersonality.net. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky. This is episode number 192, featuring an interview with Freemason Joseph Wagus, perhaps the preeminent scholar of the Order of the Illuminati. A Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site. A Cult of Personality podcast is also sponsored by Miskatonic Books, an online store that focuses on the esoteric, occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, witchcraft, the Golden Dawn, as well as dark fantasy, classic horror, and supernatural fiction. They carry books by all your favorite esoteric publishers as well. Just visit MiskatonicBooks.com. On May 1st, 1776, Adam Weishaupt founded the Order of the Bavarian Illuminati. Weishaupt's goal for the Order was to elevate society with the virtues of public education, the ideals of the Enlightenment, and the general liberty of humanity. In short, Weishaupt sought to illuminate the world. Now, over 240 years later, and for the first time in history, the collected works of Adam Weishaupt are being professionally translated into the English language and published in a 24-volume set produced by Malta Minerval Editions. To celebrate the 242nd anniversary of the Order's founding, we are pleased to announce Volume 1, Number 1, of the collected works of Adam Weishaupt will be available for pre-sale at MaltaMinervalEditions.com beginning in May 2018. To learn more, visit them on Facebook and Twitter at username MaltaMinerval or at MaltaMinervalEditions.com Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in troth and gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Joseph is the editor of The Secret School of Wisdom, The Authentic Rituals and Doctrines of the Illuminati, and On Materialism and Idealism, Volume 1 of the Collected Works of Adam Weishaupt, the founder of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. To find out more, go to MaltaMinervalEditions.com. That's M-A-L-T-A, Minerval, M-I-N-E-R-V-A-L, editions.com. Joseph joins us to discuss the history of the Order of the Illuminati, its founder, Adam Weishaupt, the Freemasonic Associations of the Order, and its downfall, along with Joseph's work editing the newly released Collected Works of Weishaupt, 
consisting of writings that supplement and enhance the original order of the Illuminati degree rituals and doctrines. Adam Weishaupt founded the Order of the Illuminati on May 1st, 1776, and was the general of the order until mid-1784. On Materialism and Idealism was first published by Weishaupt in 1786, and has long been considered one of his philosophical works. After the publication of The Secret School of Wisdom, The Authentic Ritual and Doctrines of the Illuminati, it has been discovered to be, in fact, the completion of the Docetist degree of the Illuminati. This degree was the second highest degree in the ritual system and contemplates the existence of God and the immortality of the soul through logical, secular reasoning. Joseph Wagus is a 32nd degree Freemason, a member of the Blue Friars, a member of Plano Lodge number 768, Fate Lodge number 802, the Dallas Valley of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, a fellow of the Grand College of Rites, a full member of the Texas Lodge of Research, the Michigan Lodge of Research, and a life member of the Missouri Lodge of Research. Editor of the Secret School of Wisdom, the Authentic Rituals and Doctrines of the Illuminati, and on Materialism and Idealism. He is currently preparing forthcoming books, including a history of the high degrees from the Scots Master to the Order of the Royal Secret, the Columbian Illuminati, and the improved system of the Illuminati. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Illuminated Path by Ketza. Joseph, I want to welcome you to the podcast. I appreciate you coming on and talking about your work, your ongoing work with the Illuminati material, and I think it's quite auspicious. Oh, thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. And uh, also, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And really, the occasion of it is the upcoming publication of the collected works of Adam Weishaupt through Malta Minerval Editions. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, something, a little project we've been working on in a while. And the, uh, you know, the funny story is uh, Jiva started the whole project, and I ended up uh, picking it up after he passed away. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the inspiration behind wanting to put out the collected works of the founder of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. You know, I think everyone has kind of an idea of uh, who Adam Weishaupt was with respect to the Illuminati, but the thing was is that he's not really just the founder of the Illuminati. And, you know, by doing all these different books that we're putting out right now, what you really come to the conclusion is, is that Adam Weishaupt is kind of an unknown German idealist philosopher, uh, kind of in the vein of Kant, but not really. He's kind of something else because he's got this mix of idealist philosophy. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's really kind of rooted in his earlier years. He was more of a materialist, but after the uh, death of his wife, Afra, he kind of was looking for some answers and kind of transitioned into the whole thing. And what's interesting is like if you look at his academic career, his first uh, – you know, his basically the first thing he was was a, uh, a professor of philosophy first mm-hmm. in uh, 1768. And then you know, he doesn't become a professor of canon law until 1773. So really like you know, he's a philosopher at heart. And so that's kind of like the whole idea is to take all of his works – and so we're kind of dividing it up into two series. And so the first volume of books is going to be uh, works that are related to the Illuminati, things that are, you know, that are kind of touch upon that vein. And then the second part or the second volume of books is going to be more of his philosophical works. But really, if you look at like the overarching theme over both volumes, it's really uh, his philosophical contributions kind of run throughout all of them. It just so happens to be that uh, the first volume of books is going to be more uh, oriented towards the Illuminati order. This is pretty fascinating because um, you're. It seems like you're, in in a sense, sort of recasting Weishaupt. You know, saying yes, he founded this order, but you know that was his younger years, and that's only a part of his career, which seems fairly significant in. You know, in the years a- after that. 
Yeah, so. sure. So I mean, if if you if you kind of consider that, you know, he get, becomes a professor of philosophy in 1768, uh, doesn't become a professor of canon law until 1773, and then uh, the Illuminati order, for all intents and purposes, while he's active in it, stretches from like 1776 to 1784. So you're talking eight years there, um, and so that's really only a fraction of his life, and so he doesn't really. You know, achieve much success after that because of the stigma. You know, with him being exposed as the head of this order, you know, he flees and goes into exile under the protection of Duke Ernst II, and uh, and go to Germany. And what's interesting about it is, he applies for three different professorships, but he doesn't receive anything for it. And it's the Duke actually uh, granting him a pension. You know, him being a a tenured professor at Ingolstadt University, he was supposed to have received, you know, tenure and a pension for his life, but that was cut off from him when he was exposed, and the whole Illuminati were kind of taken down in Bavaria. And so, you know, the interesting thing was, is Duke Ernst II was also a member of the Illuminati itself, and so really that kind of provided him uh, a platform to sustain himself and his family. And that's how he became kind of like a freelance writer without any kind of a university to publish under, and so. These uh, 24 books that were breaking up into two volumes, um, it's really kind of profiling like what happened after the whole thing. And the interesting part is is that he ends up recycling a lot of the material. Like when we were doing the Secret School of Wisdom, um, the top two degrees, the Docetus and the uh, 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 Philosophy degree, they ended up uh, being recycled back in later texts that he published later on. And so – you know, and for all intents and purposes, he had like a reform plan in mind, but it ended up uh, not coming into fruition. And so, what he ended up doing was take all the ideas that he wanted to inculcate into the members of the Illuminati and publish it as philosophy, because really, that's what it was the whole time. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've done this in other interviews and certainly in the Secret School of Wisdom itself, but if you could just take a few minutes and sort of. Uh, Give the listeners your own interpretation of the Illuminati, what happened, and maybe why it's not what they imagine it to be or have heard it to be. Yeah, so I think like the, 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 the best way to look at it is, is that the Illuminati order itself, like everything that we've known about it prior to the secret school was what, you know, Augustine Barwell in his memoirs on the history of Jacobinism in volume three and uh, also in John Robeson's Proofs of a Conspiracy, everything we've known about it is basically from a conspiratorial bent, and so, um, or at least in the English language. Um, and what's interesting and fascinating about it is that, you know, all this material has been recycled for the last, you know, two centuries, and everyone's taken uh, at face value what these people said. Well, one of the things that kind of got me interested in the whole deal was that, you know. I started looking at the German titles for some of these books that they're quoting in Proofs of a Conspiracy, and I was like, well, that's horribly rendered rendered German, so if this kind of scholarship is bad, what else is there? And so I kind of started collecting all the different works, and they didn't have the entire ritual system published, but in the there were several German exposés that were put out in the 1780s and 1790s, and it detailed everything up into the regent degree. And then when I kind of took a look at these uh, works, I figured out really quick that well, hang on a second here. Everything that they've said about this order isn't exactly true. And so it's just interesting that like the whole history of everything that we've ever associated with what the Illuminati were was, in fact, from a conspiratorial point of view. So really the first thing to do would be to uh, reassemble the ritual system you know, from all the texts and archive. And once we kind of translated all those different uh, you know, pieces out, reassembled the system, compared it to every known variant – uh, reconcile all the differences using, uh, you know, textual criticism, and we were able to arrive at what was, you know, more than likely a true and faithful copy of what the original system looked like. You know, like in, in some of these different manuscripts, you see little variations, um, and it's nothing really consequential. But you know, back then, obviously, they weren't printing these rituals, and it was more like scribes were copying uh, from copies. And so over time, it's kind of like if, you know, Greg, if like you and I were playing telephone. I would tell you something you would tell your neighbor, and by the time it made it all the way back around the circle, the message might not exactly be you know, the, the right message. Mm-hmm. And so what we had to do was uh, take all these different variants, compare them, um, and then kind of arrive at what the actual root text said. And so what you get is basically uh, a true and faithful copy of it. And so like you know, the Illuminati itself, what was it? Well, the Illuminati order – you know, it kind of starts out like more like an honors academic fraternity. You know, you consider the source. Uh, people don't really create 
in isolation. They create and draw from their own personal experiences. Well, if Adam Weishaupt up to this point, you know, he wasn't a Freemason. He was a college professor. And so what he's going to do is draw upon his experience. And so, you know, he was educated by uh, Jesuits. And so the point is, is that he's going to draw inspiration from their system, even though he's not a Jesuit himself. That's his, you know, sphere of influence. That's his education. So he's going to draw upon this. And so, like, when we look at some of the early variants of the Illuminati rituals, you know, they're exceedingly plain, but the fireworks really are in the lectures. And that makes a lot of sense because if the guy's a philosopher, you know, he's going to draw upon, like, philosophy because that's really all he's trying to do is to teach people and, uh, you know, to inculcate his ideas and his philosophy in them. And so uh, he, he basically, you know, he's – in a lot of ways, he has, like, a lot of sociopathic traits where he believes with his magical thinking that – well, we're going to we're going to make humanity free, and we're going to make humanity virtuous and happy, and we're going to make them adhere to a moral regimen, my moral regimen, and that's exactly how we're going to do this. And it's, so it's it's kind of funny because if you look at like his arguments that he makes, you know, philosophically they're unsound, they're you know rather utopian, but in the end, you know, it still sounds really really good because the guy's a sophist, so he can he can speak very eloquently, and so even though uh, a lot of the arguments he makes are philosophically unsound. You know, they do sound good, and so that idea wasn't really lost on his pupils. But the <laughs> trouble was <laughs> is that he's, uh, he's competing with you know, several different you know, secret societies at this point. Um, you've got the Golden Rosy Cross up in uh, the northern parts of Germany, and you've also got the Strict Observance as well. And so Adam Weishaupt, you know, about 1777, he's initiated into a Strict Observance Lodge in Munich, and uh, he doesn't really care too much about these guys. What he cares about is his own order, and so by 1778, we see like evidence in the correspondence that they get the idea, well, hey, we'll just take this existing system of Freemasonry, and we're going to merge the Illuminati with it, and the main reason why they had to do it was you know, two reasons. The first reason was that they didn't have any uh, money. I mean that's the main thing is they didn't have anything to really advance their order with, and the second thing was is that Freemasonry was already established and had a pool of members to draw from. So what their idea was is to kind of graft and integrate with Freemasonry, one, for their cash, and two, to, uh, to draw upon the members. And that was kind of the whole idea of the thing. So you know, Adam Weishaupt, he didn't care much about rituals or ceremonies. It was more about the philosophy. And if, and if it wasn't until like he met up with uh, Baron von Knigge in 1780 uh, – so Knigge, he's up in uh, the northern parts of Germany – and like the strict observance system, which at this point was the dominant right in Germany, it was kind of going into terminal decline. Now, if you'll recall the uh, strict observance, they were the uh, guys that were saying that they were the Knights Templar. You know, they were founded mm -hmm. by uh, Baron von Hund, and then you know von Hund dies in 1776. And if you got this system that's supposedly led by these unknown superiors, and yet after the death of the founder, <laughs> no superiors mm -hmm. appear, it kind mm -hmm. of like starts getting things to shake up. And so like their system starts going into terminal decline. So Knigge gets the idea that he's going to make his own system, like a reform of the strict observance. Well, he comes into contact in uh, Frankfurt with the Marquis Costanzo de Costanzo, and he says to him basically like, well, hey, uh, don't create a new system here. We've got everything you're looking for already. And so Knigge joins up, and they start uh, working the whole system, and then he runs out of degrees. And the guy's a rock star because he's recruiting from you know disaffected members of the strict observance. And so he starts swelling the ranks immediately. And so it puts him into line of contact with Weishaupt. And Weishaupt says, Well, hey, you know, these degrees that you're looking for, well, you know, they don't really exist anywhere but my mind, but I haven't found any worthy collaborators. So what do you say we work together? And so he he kind of goes along with it and it works for a while, but ultimately these two guys, they kind of duke it out. And it ends up being where uh, Knigge himself, you know, he has enough of uh, vice hops, like you know, you know, for all intents and purposes, like zealotry, where he's uh, basically trying to, you know, be supreme over Knigge. But the thing is, is Weishaupt is not a ritualist. Knigge is a ritualist, but Adam Weishaupt is the philosophical like powerhouse. So what you really see is like two competing visions for the Illuminati. You've got a guy that sees. The Illuminati, you know, its potential as being a, a yet another Masonic high degree system versus uh, Weishaupt's view, where it's you know a so-called secret school of wisdom, you know, that teaches ideals, enlightenment, liberate humanity, you know, make mankind happy, all those nice utopian, happy-sounding things. And so, you know, ultimately, Kinnega says, "Okay, I've had enough of this." He quits, and that kind of gets the whole Illuminati going into terminal decline in uh, 1784. 
Well, thank you for that <coughs> summary. That's yeah. quite comprehensive. Um, I'm just curious of your own opinions on, well, two things, I think. One is this sort of uh, desire to promulgate their system through masonry. Um, and then I guess the other would be your opinion about um, sort of doing things that have high ideals, but yet the means by which they're accomplished are not the highest, if you know what I or the most ethical, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so t taking moral liberties with uh, accomplishing things, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, especially when you're talking about like the most highest philosophical concepts and then you're like, well, we're just going to, you know, swell our ranks however we can and, and get as much money as we can by sort of taking over this Masonic lodges and appropriating their finances. Yeah, I mean, so maybe we just start right there. So, um you know, ultimately, like Weishaupt wanted to reform the world, but he wanted to do it gradually and incrementally through education. But Kniga's like, well, why do we need to wait for years and years to happen here when we can uh, do it today and we'll use this Masonic network because you already have people kind of surrounding the government. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the first thing we have to establish is that, like, the Illuminati, they didn't want to take over or overthrow any kind of system. But what they did want to do was use influence. And so – Weishaupt thought if we educate all these people who will later rise up to be civil servants, we can surround these different regents and or you know or sorry these different dukes and you know princes and so forth with uh, advisors, so that way they can keep him from making bad decisions and so forth. You know, kind of influence the system. Or at least that's how it's supposed to work out. Um, but ultimately, you know, that's not exactly an ethical thing to do either. So they want to change the world and it's to make mankind uh, free and happy. But at the same point in time. You know, they're not doing very nice things. I mean, you're, you're talking about like one, subverting Freemasonry, two, subverting uh, the heads of state. You know, of course, these aren't democratically elected heads of state, but all the same, it's the existing governmental structure. So what they're actually doing is like, you know, highly unethical, um, in my opinion. Um, so so it's kind of like a it's, it's kind of a quandary. So like, you know, he he's a. He he has the right idea, but the way he accomplishes it isn't the best because – and it's it's mainly out of necessity because like the Illuminati itself, you know, they're founded in 76, and by 1780, they're facing internal struggles of their own because a lot of these people in the so-called Aeropagus, which is like the uh, – you know, the, the first like, you know, 10 or so members that founded the Illuminati, you know, all of Weishaupt's pupils um, – they start, you know, getting pretty disaffected with Weishaupt because, you know, the guy's kind of domineering. Like he literally calls himself the general. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you've got this system that's supposedly uh, a democratic uh, system, and yet you've got an autocrat running the whole thing. I'm the general. I'm Spartacus. I'm the liberator of the slaves. <laughs> and so, you know, it doesn't make people feel warm and fuzzy inside. And so they nearly collapse on their own. And if it wasn't for Kniga coming in in 1780 and swelling the ranks with uh, – you know, with Freemasons, you know, really what would have happened is it probably would have cannibalized itself and we never would have even heard about this system. Now, to speak to your second question, uh, when you're talking about – was it – you were saying that uh, – was it ethical for them to basically use an existing system? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think just sort of taking over Freemasonry generally is, is – Yeah, so I mean oh, – go ahead. Yeah, it just seems like – and a sort of awkward way to start things off. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Mm -hmm. So, like, if we look at what's going on in Freemasonry in Germany, so you've got, um, you've got the Golden Rosy Cross, and they're like, uh, you know, they have like more like mystical, like uh, Christian type things inside of it, like more like Christian mysticism, versus the Strict Observance, which was also a utopian system. Um, and, you know, it's supposedly led by these unknown superiors. And so both of them have a rather Christian bent to their nature. And it's not to say that they were really Christian Masonic systems, but that was the way that they were, uh, you know, made to appear. Because if you're recruiting from like high minded men and an overwhelming majority of people are Christians in these countries where these uh, orders operate, you know, it's a necessary structure that you have to put into place here. Certainly. And so like what basically um, – you know, both of these systems have problems, right? So uh, the Golden Rosy Cross system, 
um, you know, it's a money making scheme. So like if we if we look at like really what they were doing in Germany and, you know, even like some of the countries surrounding it, these Masonic high degree systems, like everything past like the master mason degree, all these so-called high degrees, really they're money making ventures. And so you have to give like instructions and teachings to different people. And it's not to poo-poo on Freemasonry itself, but I mean this, it's just the nature of reality. They have high degree fees. Uh, they're very exclusive and uh, you know, kind of limit the uh, participation to people like in the upper classes and so forth. And so uh, any kind of like social upward mobility is you know cut off essentially. And so these systems have problems. So like if you have like a you know a, for all intents and purposes these two systems are top down, the Illuminati on the other hand are bottom up. And so they're both trying to accomplish the same things, uh, you know, basically help people to have like connection to like the absolute, you know, insight into the nature of God and so forth, but also uh, to have like to make humanity happy. So these other two systems are more of top down. The Illuminati is more bottom up. But I think everyone's missing the point altogether because um, like if you look at Freemasonry itself – you know, past the the uh, you know the third of the Master Masons degree, um, a lot of these high degrees really get going in earnest from like the Scots Master degree, like in the uh, 1730s, and so you know it's trans Scots Master itself is transplanted into Germany in the 1740s. There's the uh, Lodge L'Union in uh, Berlin that was chartered uh, from London of all places, um, and so that's kind of like how the high degrees get going in Germany, and then in France it's transplanted in about 1740. And from there, in these different countries in Europe, they start spreading. So people start uh, inventing degrees and so forth. And so, you know, Freemasonry itself is a valuable institution. But, you know, in continental Europe, you know, speaking from that perspective, past the third degree, like it's more of like an enterprise for making money. And so you have to have, you know, value to the system. So you have, you know, philosophical things they inject into it. So where I'm going with this is like you could look at it from two different perspectives. You could call the Illuminati Masonic reformers because in a sense they wanted to reform Freemasonry as you know this isn't necessarily an alchemical exercise. This isn't uh, some system led by so-called unknown superiors. What this is is a system that's instituted in 1717 Grand Lodge of England, um, you know, former labor union that's now turned into a gentleman's social club and so forth. So in from from some perspective that's actually right, but even though they're telling truths, on the other hand, what they're basically trying to do is to stop all these other systems. And what the Illuminati end up doing is creating their own right of Freemasonry called the Eclectic Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I guess it all reinforces the idea that context and understanding context really changes the way you interpret things. So appreciate that. Um, I'm curious about your own thoughts on Weishaupt's philosophy. Um, you mentioned that his ideas are utopian and maybe are not, uh, I don't know if, I don't want to use the word not well thought out, but I'm not sure of the exact language you use when you described it, but it gave the impression that Oh, philosophically unsound. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about your uh, your opinions on his work, and then and then the fact that you're publishing it as well. So um, because clearly you think it's important despite its shortcomings. Yeah, and so like his overall uh, ideas, like so. Let's take. Um, we'll just take an example here. So in the uh, was in this in the priest degree he's got this thing called the lesson in the first chamber and he's basically cribbing from Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, discourse on the origin of human inequality and uh, Rousseau's discourse on the origin of human inequality um, it basically was like a little prize that kind of got uh, put Rousseau on the map and then later he makes it to the social contract and you know uh, Robespierre like he was basically uh, trying to enact the social contract in France, which was also a bad idea <laughs> because, right. he, yeah, he, he's basically uh, taking a, a, a system like that's utopian in that, you know, it's a goal to reach for, it's a goal to strive for, but he lost sight in the sense that it's like, you know, it's one thing to have an idea and it's another thing to try to man, manifest an idea that's not necessarily possible 
and its real purpose is, is to be a goal for something to strive for with the knowledge and forethought that you'll never be able to achieve it. And that's why it's like it's uh, philosophically unsound. And I'm not, I'm not implying that, you know, the Illuminati had anything to do with the French Revolution or that, you know, that Weishaupt even thought that, uh, that any of these things would even be possible. But the point is, is that they, they, they draw from the same font of, or fount of inspiration um, and so in this lesson in the first chamber that, you know, just like Rousseau says, like the idea is that humanity started in an exalted state. You know, it was free. All it needed to do was provide for itself. But through its needs, it, it, humanity became enslaved. And so it's through these different needs that, you know, you had agrarian society, which developed into a civil society. And then these different rulers and so forth uh, sprang up. They started fighting each other. And so the more and more things that man developed were more and more. Uh, links that they forged on their own chains of enslavement. And so Adam Weishaupt's prescription, uh, not just in that uh, thing, because like we discussed before, he recycles a lot of his information in his later philosophical works. Um, so basically by uh, curbing one's needs, one would become free. So to, to need very little from life uh, actually would set you free. And, you know, it's, and it's, a, it's a concept we see in a lot of different philosophical systems. And, you know, there probably is some universal truth in that idea. So, you know, on paper, like if we were to look at like what is the value in putting Weishaupt's ideas and words into a series of books? Well, if you're literally trying to enact it, very little. But, you know, as we've seen time and time again throughout history, trying to literally enact any kind of an idea uh, that's, you know, philosophical in nature may not be the best idea. What it really should be is more like a goal of something to strive uh, towards. Like, you know, the, the whole concept of like self-perfection, we you know what is self-perfection. It doesn't really, you know, your idea, Greg, of perfection and my idea of perfection may not be the same thing. And it doesn't make them any more or less valid or true because it's a unique and personal idea. And that's the point is that what we're doing is we're gaining insight into this person's mind because, you know, you know, for the last two centuries, the guy's been demonized. And even in like in his own, uh, you know, native language in, in Germany, in addition to being, you know, renowned for being the founder of the Illuminati order, he's known for being a critic of, of Kant. But really, that's not all he was. He, he blends like all sorts of different philosophical ideas, and it's not from just one place. And that really the kind of interesting part about all that is that so he he draws from all these ideas, but it goes back to like his childhood because his mother and father died when he was very young. And um, so he was raised by his godfather, the Baron von Ickstadt, who was the book censor for Ingolstadt University. Well, so his father was a professor there, and so he's raised by his godfather in the absence of his parents. And so Adam Weishaupt, who, he's basically being raised by uh, the Baron von Ickstadt. And so the guy's teaching class, so Adam Weishaupt's at home reading all the books that are banned that you're not supposed to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> so really, like all of those things that he wasn't supposed to have, that's where he gets a lot of the ideas. And so, you know, he's got no uh, parents per se. Um, and so he kind of turns inwards and, be, and basically develops all these ideas and philosophies in his own mind based upon the ideas of others. And so he's drawing from many different people. You know, there's, you know, maybe four or five major influences that I think are in there. But, you know, that's the beautiful part about all this is um, you'll see different ideas that are developed. Um, you know, the first book uh, on materialism and idealism, it's basically uh, his docetist degree that you'll see in the secret school, but it's the idea finished out. So even though the Illuminati collapsed, you know, he didn't give up the idea of trying to teach these philosophical lessons. And so what we see is he basically goes back and recycles it, and it goes through like a first edition. Uh, basically, the critics beat him up over it, and so he changes his introduction, uh, revises a handful of points, and adds on to the end of it. And what, what he uh, presents, again, is utopian and philosophically unsound. But the idea is is that he basically, uh, uh, in his own mind, proves the existence of God and the immortality of the soul, but he does it through logical, secular reasoning, which is like pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I agree. And um, I think it's interesting because um, this is not the first time I've seen like this sort of philosophical, linguistic approach to mysticism, like, uh, you know, a truly intellectual approach to the divine. Mm. And I'm not sure it's fully successful in either the cases that I've looked at. Um, 
but it certainly does give one an again and like an intellectual appreciation for it um but it some it seems to lack the the experiential dimension mm-hmm. um that you know can only come through some sort of practice or uh you know i imagine some sort of pilgrimage or some sort of experience of mm-hmm. of the individual sort of uh gaining an awareness of these all of these uh concepts but in a in a much more tangible way yeah absolutely and i, I totally agree with you on that because what, you know ultimately he he's basically taking a cerebral approach to it the interesting backstory like i had mentioned before is that you know this idea of you know proving the existence of God and, and the immortality of the soul. It's really a utilitarian approach because um, you know he's grieving after the the death of his first wife Afra, mm-hmm. and um, you know he it, it, from a materialist point of view there is no God, there is no life after this, and that's the end of it. You know so she's lost forever, and I'll never see her again. And so you know utterly like his, like you know within the depths and the being of essence of his soul that he rejects this idea and so he's searching for answers and so what he kind of comes to the conclusion is is that you know and he says it a lot in uh on materialism and idealism he says you know that really this you know it'd be like god creates uh, a wonderful like banquet and feast and sets out the food for no one to eat and so he goes like it doesn't it doesn't square with my uh with with logic, why why would it be that we only live for a short period of time, and that we're gone? And so what he's doing basically is like you're seeing in this degree, you're seeing his metamorphosis from a materialist to more of an idealist perspective. And what's what's interesting about it, like within the context of the Illuminati system, uh, it was called the Docetist degree. And even though it wasn't finished, um, you know, like well, what is Docetism? It's like an early Christian heresy. And so basically the idea was is that, you know, Jesus didn't really suffer on the cross. It was that, uh, you know, he only appeared to be human, but really he didn't have a body at all. And it was kind of the heretical idea. And so – and it's kind of like couched in his arguments, but what you're really seeing is is more of a, a deistical philosophy is what he's, what, he's, what he's advocating for. So his concept of God isn't within like the uh, you know, Trinitarian Christian approach. It's more of a deistical one. And what's even funnier in like about all that is, you know, that's how he feels like when he's like in his, you know, uh, middle to late 30s. And then after the whole Illuminati thing goes away and he publishes a series of books in his old age, he kind of reconciles with the Catholic Church and he's donating money to build a new church. And so it's really full circle <laughs> when you put all these things together. So I'm not even sure how much of his own philosophy that he had as a young man he believed as, a, as an old man. That's a good point. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the Docetist uh, degree and some of the things that he talks about there. It's pretty interesting, you know, um, this idea that, uh, you know, we can only know through the senses, of course, and then that, you know, all – there's no things. It's just all appearances, which, you know, that makes sense to me um, in a lot of ways. Um but yet he 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 never sort of relinquishes the idea of the individual or the self, even though he gets away. From, you know, he does acknowledge the sort of impermanence of the of the body, mm-hmm. but then he'll sort of like cling to this um, idea of a of a self or a higher self or a soul or some remnant of uh, subjectivity. I guess you would say. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I kind of look at his like philosophy, like just like his like if you if you read what it is that he's saying, he's basically says that like life is like a, you know, they're like those little Russian dolls where you stack them all inside of each other. I, I forget what those things are called. The Matryoshka. Yeah. Yeah. Those things. And so basically what he's saying is, is that like, you know, maybe the life and the experience that, you know, Greg, that you and I are having right now is like the smallest little doll. And once we shed this husk, it's actually a larger uh, thing that's containing it. But what he what he proposes is, is that even though death in this plane of existence may not be the final death, it may be a series of deaths or experiences, 
and it's, it's really weird because you would think, okay, well, maybe that that it's like a reincarnation type philosophy, but really that's not what he's advocating for. He's talking like a, an ascending planes or maybe like – even though he doesn't say interdimensionally, but maybe that's what he's, he's getting at is he's saying that uh, this plane of existence is one thing and then there's maybe another plane after this and another plane after this. And like the, the ideas that he has is that like you were saying, it's all based upon the senses and things, and he's saying that – the reason that we, we scarcely lack the words to understand anything else is because no one's experienced the plane of existence beyond this plane of existence. And so we lack the ideas and the understanding to even describe it. And so uh, what he's getting at is like that all memories and things that we consider this world, all uh, of our five senses, you know, who's to say there aren't other senses that can be obtained in the next plane of existence. And so it's really kind of a mind blowing, real uh, soaring philosophy but the whole thing underpinning the whole idea is that he's reconciling the loss of his uh of his first wife yeah it's interesting too i think to note that at the beginning and at the end he sort of circles back to the same sort of main theme which is this this apophatic uh perception of the divine which is like you there's no way you can describe it it's ineffable there's just no way to even fully perceive it as a human mind and um i think that's a, an interesting point philosophically because it, it does sort of reach a, a pinnacle of you know mysticism in uh in many uh, traditions, certainly in Christian mysticism with like pseudo-Dionysus or the Neoplatonists or uh, even the, you know, certainly the Kabbalists in, in many Kabbalistic schools. So it's it really echoes similar ideas from those traditions in terms of the way like the divine is just so far beyond... Uh, conceptuality that and and trying to put human attributes to the divine in any way is just uh, a mistake really yeah and i think that rings true to like a lot of our own experience right because if we look at the uh, conceptions of of god or the supreme being or however you want to refer to it I mean, really, what what we're doing is we're anthropomorph uh, anthropomorphizing, uh, you know, the attributes of divinity. And the thing is, we'll never really know or have an understanding of what these things actually are. It's you know, it's it's beyond us. And so we can have like what different uh, you know uh, holy books say that the nature of God is, but really, you know, without any kind of firsthand experience, like you know these uh, these revealed religions. You know, it, they're basically. I mean, that's one thing that we all can agree is that they're all written by people for people. And so, what we really see is a lot of like humanity's understanding of what the nature of God is, who God is, but it's not coming from the source of God. So, you know, it really does ring true in a lot of sense. You know, what is the nature of God? It's it's really ineffable, right? So, well, I would have agreed with you maybe a year ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Certainly. And I and I still agree with you up to a point. However, there is um a post apophatic apprehension of the divine and at least in certain dynamisms. Um so those exist and can be articulated. So it's not to say that the apophatic approach is incorrect. It's it's mm -hmm. certainly correct, but um, there is a post-apophatic approach as well that should be acknowledged. Um, it doesn't make either one more or less valid. It's just, I think to someone in our position, you could look at it more as stages where you would have cataphatic, which is the anthropomorphizing of the divine, the apophatic, which is the nullification of any conception of the divine and then the post-apophatic again which is like not conceptualizing but sort of apprehending the dynamics of the divine um in a way and so 
it, it's more of a progression maybe, but it, that's probably outside the scope of our conversation. But, um, oh, sure. And it's, and it's probably just like a nuanced difference, isn't it? Sure. Um, but, but I think it's interesting to see how Weishaupt is really appreciative of, of such a large scope of the mystical tradition and what it's expressing philosophically. Um, because it, it, I think it shows an appreciation for the same sort of materials, like you mentioned, these banned books and, and all the materials, the same ones that Pico della Mirandola was learning from and putting together in his 900 theses that got him excommunicated. Yeah, did you, did you, uh, do you know why a lot of those books were banned in the first place? Well, no, I can only speak to Pico's uh, expression of them, and I know why it got him in trouble, but I don't know why the books in general were banned. So, like, if we look at, um, you know, so you have, like, the whole, like, War of Austrian Succession that's going on, uh, and it basically culminates, like, in, like, 1762. Uh, you, there's this policy that goes on in Germany, and so and think of Germany at this point as not really a united country. Uh, it, for all intents and purposes, it's the the decaying Holy Roman Empire, though the northern states have already kind of broke free with Protestantism. Um, and so what we see in the the uh, northern states, like under Frederick the Great, you see this policy of enlightened despotism where basically is that we're going to have these agrarian land reforms. We're going to have public education. We're going to have all of these different ideas and conceptions. Um, and so you start seeing like education come into the fold. And what ends up happening is that uh, – even as far south as Bavaria, which is you know definitely more like uh, like Austrocentric, uh, being under like more of the Habsburgs, um, all the same, like they start they start having a uh, the Bavarian Academy of Sciences, and so um, the guy who's running uh, Bavaria, uh, Maximilian the uh, Third, he sets up the Bavarian uh, Academy of Sciences and. Uh, you know, does away with uh, with the Jesuit influence in society, especially after they're banned by the Pope in 1773. Um, and so, basically, the Enlightenment was what I'm getting at is come into Bavaria at this point. But then, um, you know, Maximilian III he dies, and so a distant cousin of his, uh, you know, Carl Theodore, he takes the throne, and he doesn't really care too much about Bavaria at all. And so, the first thing he does, he trades like the western part of it uh, to Austria for a title, and uh, then he starts putting uh, you know former Jesuits into positions of influence. He kind of starts throttling back the Enlightenment. They start uh, banning more of these books uh, that were you know that had been banned before, but then started becoming back into public usage, and then rebanned again. And so, it's it kind of in this in environment that really Weishaupt decides to create the Illuminati itself? Because you know here we have the Enlightenment; it's finally coming into Bavaria. At the same point in time that he's become a professor of canon law and he's the first non-Jesuit to take this position, and then the rug gets pulled out from underneath him. And so it's 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 kind of through these uh, repression of ideas uh, by them that actually leads to the propagation of these ideas. And so if Weishaupt can't do it publicly, he'll do it privately. And so that's really kind of the thrust, and that's why it had to be a quote-unquote secret school of wisdom because you can't publicly teach these things. And so that's what a little a – really a lot of these uh, – these uh, banned books, it gives them even more value in the in the mind of Weishaupt's where I'm going. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to to find out. Um, you know, later in his life, uh, do you have any idea about sort of? Uh, you know, did he have any thoughts about uh, any kind of? public work or was he totally ruined at that point and just sort of writing to for his own edification really well in, in a way it wasn't no so remember he's got a pension now so after he's fled mm -hmm. he's got a pension uh from duke Ernst the second so he's got a, a relative degree of stability uh and so he's able to basically kind of support his family he's got a place to stay a little bit of income but at the same point in time, so the Illuminati, they are banned by a series of edicts by Carl Theodore. You know, there's three of them running up till uh, 1787. 
And so these series of edicts basically crush the Illuminati in the south, but in the north they keep uh, flourishing. And so the Bavarian government conducts a, you know, two separate uh, raids on Councilor Svok and Baron de Bossis, and they seize uh, inter- internal correspondence. And both of these guys are on the Aeropagus, which is the ruling body. And so they start publishing uh, these different things from their system. And so what you see happen is, is that he starts publishing. They start publishing these papers, but they cherry pick the information to make him look really bad. Uh, in particular, there was a thing on there. It was like, oh, well, they're looking for recipes for abortion and this, that, and the other. And the interesting thing about it is that, uh, you know, so Weishaupt's first wife dies, and she says, you know, kind of on her deathbed, uh, well, here, marry my sister. You know, she'll take uh, care of the family. So it's kind of his wife's own arrangement. Um, but the thing is, before uh, they can get married, he ends up getting his uh, now deceased wife's sister pregnant prior to them being married. And so his honor's at stake. So the guy's like freaking out. I'm here. I am leading this virtuous society, and I've done something that's uh, totally taboo within the, you know, at least within the perspective of the church. Right. And so he's he's getting desperate at this point, and that's what a lot of that was all about. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that the guy's a, a saint. He's not a saint at all. You know, but I mean, which one of us are saints? And it's sure. kind of like if someone like if someone dug through your uh, email box, Greg, like. I'm sure in 15 minutes, if they really wanted to do some dedicated keyword searching, they could find a number of things that if they put them out in the public could you know, make you look bad. And that's exactly what happened to them as well. So what you're seeing is is like they're basically exposing like sides of uh, people like within the Illuminati order to make them look bad. So uh, where I'm going with all this is like, you know, the first, you know, handful of books that he puts out there our defense of his honor, his reputation, and moreover, the the honor and reputation of his order. And so what he's doing is he's defending um, what it was they were and what they stood for. And so that kind of preoccupies a lot of his time because he has, you know, a relative degree of stability under the protection of Duke Ernst II. And so it's not necessarily a money-making venture. He makes a little bit of money off of it. But the main thing he's trying to do is uphold his honor and his reputation at first. Mm-hmm. But ultimately – you know, he goes off into obscurity. So he looks at, you know, three different institutions after about 1787, uh, you know, Jena and there's like, there's, I forget the other two towns, but at any point it doesn't, oh, Vienna. And then what was the other one? Well, I guess it doesn't matter, but, um, he basically looks for, uh, positions, but he can't get any because, you know, his name's ruined essentially. And so all he's left to at this point is publishing. And so, like when you're reading on materialism and idealism, this is like the reason why we're putting it out first is because it basically is uh, something that we discovered after we did the ritual translations. We started looking through other pieces of his literature to see if he recycled any information, and lo and behold, this entire book, he recycled that degree, which is interesting. But really what it marks is is his transition from you know from defending his honor to basically – taking the ideas and philosophy that he had in the beginning and trying to recycle it and uh, make it commercially available, one, for profit, but two, moreover, for the education and the uh, perfection of humanity. So that that's really kind of why it gets going that way. It's fascinating. Joseph, I don't know if you had any final thoughts for listeners or if you wanted to remind them about where they can get the collected works of uh, Adam Weishaupt as they are released. Yeah, absolutely. So you'll be able to visit our site at multiminervaleditions.com. You know, that sounds like a mouthful. So it's M-A-L, uh, M-A-L-T-A-M-I-N-E-R-V-A-L-E-D-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. Um, we also have a Facebook page. You can find us there. Um, so the, uh, the main website is almost done. We're still working out a few kinks with a shopping cart. And uh, later this month, we'll have it up for sale. We'll have uh, volume one is going to be on materialism and idealism. It's the uh, the kind of the repackaging and the rehashing after the fact of Adam Weishaupt's Dossidus degree. Uh, the second book that's coming in the series is The Improved System of the Illuminati. And what that really gets into is Adam Weishaupt's reform plan for the system of degrees when he was in exile – and so what you see is that he – in that one, he'll drop all the uh, ceremonies and so forth, and he'll get right down to uh, the ideas and the philosophy because you know he's not a ritualist. He doesn't care about ritual. He cares about ideas, and you know th- that will give you an idea for the first two books. So if you guys have found like this uh, dialogue worthwhile or interesting, 
you know, I strongly encourage you to visit multiminervaladditions.com to purchase the book. I'm sure, you know, Amazon's going to pick the book up too later on. Um, so, you know, you, you've got a variety of options at your disposal should you be so inclined to purchase a copy. Well, thank you so much for giving us a, a insight into this uh, amazing project you're working on. And I hope you'll keep us uh, apprised of new developments and new additions as they come out because uh, it's really fascinating. Um, and it, it was really great to speak with you, Joseph. And I certainly enjoyed learning a lot more than I had. So, And I hope uh, other people had a similar experience. Well, thank you very much, Greg, and I really appreciate the opportunity for allowing me to come onto your program today and to talk about a little bit more, and I'll definitely uh, keep your abreast of all further editions coming out. In the Chamber of Reflection, at chamberofreflection.com, we continue this fascinating interview with Joseph, delving even more deeply into his research on Adam Weishaupt and the Order of the Illuminati. It's wonderful to explore the history and philosophy of the Illuminati with new information so many years after its dissolution, and Joseph shares many of his insights with us. Join us for that fascinating and important conversation. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks, and I salute you. Thanks for listening, and until next time.